Welcome to The Writer's Edge, a podcast exploring writing across the disciplines from the arts to the sciences and everything in between. We're coming to you from Shark Tank Number 2 in the NSU Writing and Communication Center on the fourth floor of the Alvin Sherman Library in Davie, Florida. My name is Emma and I'm a Graduate Assistant Coordinator at the NSU Writing and Communication Center and one of the hosts of The Writer's Edge. Today we're showcasing a podcast created by NSU students in our Masters of Arts program in Composition, Rhetoric, and Digital Media. Merle, Holland, and June will discuss how food rhetoric is rarely discussed within composition classrooms and how they hope to make space for conversation of food rhetoric in the future. We hope you enjoy this student podcast. What's something we can all agree on? We love food. Most of us don't have a problem talking about our favorite foods. Food rhetoric is everywhere. It's in the commercials for fast food restaurants, the videos created by our favorite YouTubers, and the images uploaded onto hashtag foodie Instagram accounts. Food rhetoric is present at the dinner table, but it's also in your shopping list, on the packages of your ingredients, and the cookbook, food blog, or recipe card you use to make dinner. Food rhetoric really is everywhere. As active producers and consumers, why aren't we talking about it more in the composition classroom? This idea came from reading Matthew Paproth's article in Writing Pathways to Student Success. The article, titled Confronting the Uncomfortable, Food and First-Year Composition, discusses Paproth's approach to writing and talking about food in the space of a first-year composition classroom. Holland, this was such a great read. I wish that I had been offered the opportunity to take a composition course on the rhetoric of food. Oh, I do too. It's, it is a wonderful read. Um, Paproth does talk about several different food scholars and how food actually brings people together. And he works to introduce uh, the students to the many unspoken assumptions and decisions that undergird our reaction with food. That is a quote taken directly from the article. And then he says that he wants students to consider the various cultural, moral, and political ramifications of the choices they make regarding food. I really like that because I thought that, you know, a lot of, we all know how food brings us together. I think that that's like a very common thing that people talk about, Mm -hmm. but we don't talk about like sort of the issues or how it can bring us, not bring us apart, but how it can differ so much between people just because of the differences in our lifestyles. Like I think he says like, you know, considering vegan or vegetarian uh, eaters. I mean, even between you and me, I feel like we probably eat very differently. You're from, you're from like a very classic Southern state, correct? Absolutely. I was raised on biscuits and gravy fresh eggs from the chickens that I got in the morning. Um, I I never went out and killed any animals. We did kill some chickens, pigs. Um, Occasionally we would go hunting, you know, get deer, bring three deer in for the winter, butcher them, and then have like fresh venison all during the winter years. And yeah, I know a lot of other people like sometimes they're used to going out for every meal. And that wasn't us at all. Going out to eat was really a treat. It, well, I mean, in that sense, similar. So I come from a Cuban American house. So we obviously ate a lot of rice and beans and a lot of pork. Didn't I, I do not have the experience of having killed any of my own food. But I do remember that I went vegetarian for about six years and how um, alienated I felt from my own culture and 
my family because of it, because everyone sort of looked at me like, how could you just stop eating pork? And it was weird. But these are kinds of, like the kinds of things I think that Paproth wants his students to talk about in his class. And I think that he said in his in the article that as students become more interested, they engage more and they start to like research more. Like I never looked into why what I was doing was so weird or so different. I wish that I had a class that would have forced me to do that. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like that that is what Paproth stresses and how he gets his students to consider, uh, I guess he kind of termed it stuff that was uncomfortable or like he, he made a very clear distinction. We always seem to think about food as a familial kind of thing, even sometimes a spiritual kind of thing whenever we eat. And it brings people together. But I liked Paproth because he took it in a very different direction. Um, he actually said that he's going to focus on discomfort food, not comfort. And I, even in the article, one of the things that he mentioned was, you know, I, I set up and I asked my students, would you, would you ever eat stewed dog? And their reactions were quite visceral, like, there's no way, that's wrong. However, by the end of the class discussion, Paproth had said that in the right circumstances, yes, every student would eat stewed dog. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's important to know also that Paproth's not, he's not trying to teach students what's right or wrong um, in terms of food. Like, he's not super concerned with food ethics. Obviously, he would like to teach that, but it's still a composition course. Like the main outcome of this course is to teach students logical argument, critical reading, and effective writing. And it's just the setting is food, which I really love that. And I think that there are so many ways to talk and write about food and we're all doing it. I mean, I think food is the easiest thing for anyone to talk about. Mm -hmm, absolutely. It's an experience that everyone shares and that everyone, even say you don't have like a very, you know, middle-class educational raised right background, um, even people, you know, maybe haven't, didn't go to high school, got their GED. I mean, they were still eating, of course, you have to eat to live. Mm -hmm. And so I think food is definitely a shared experience that we can all have. And it does relate very well to composition. You can write about food, you can argue. Um, the most basic ones would be food critics or advertisement. Well, and he talks, I mean, I think we both like this example. He said one of the things that college freshmen, you know, have have to think about is how to feed themselves. A lot of these students are coming, you know, they're leaving home for the first time and having to think about how do I feed myself, you know, either something yeah. healthy or fast or cheap. I don't know what your experience is what was like. Mine was actually very different because I didn't live on campus. I I was always a transient student. So I I just I cooked at home. I had everything, it was no different for me. I had a full stove. Maybe my groceries were a little different because I didn't have as much money anymore. So I couldn't buy all the same great things my parents were probably buying. But budgets suck. <laughs> I don't, I've, I've heard some of like our other peers and they talk about like these ramen dinners or like they get really excited mm -hmm. about $5 Mo Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> you are not wrong. Um, I've had the exact first-hand experience with it and yeah after moving away from the farm and into college I I kind of had a half and half experience I did live on campus for about the first year and a half and then 
I got to the point where I was saying, this is way too expensive and I got to find somewhere off campus that's close by, but I could still, you know, it was within a, a reasonable driving distance. And so whenever I was on campus, it was very convenient. You had like these preloaded dining dollars and you could just walk in the cafeteria and it was just a giant buffet. Yeah, you could choose the healthy foods like the salad bar or soup, but the pizza and the pasta options were always so much more inviting. And to take it back to Pat Roth, um, he talks about like, sometimes you feel guilty after eating or indulging. Like, do we eat too little? Do we eat too much food? Yeah, these are things that he has his students consider in their assignments. I know he says that some of the assignments that he has them work on is like keeping an electronic food journal, just writing down what they eat and then making notes about it. So maybe like, how did it make them feel? So just connecting their experience of, of that, of eating and putting it into words, learning how to communicate that experience to someone else or to themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and I like how he did let them keep a log. However, I would think if I were to take Pat Frost's class and have to log my food, um, it would be difficult to figure out eating in the cafeteria every day or going out to eat. You don't really know where that food is coming from. Uh, he talks a lot about ethical eating or ethically sourced food, um, sustainable food. And when we eat out a lot, we don't know where that food comes from. However, the other half of my co freshman college experience and yours, um, we were able to go to the store and choose our foods. Yes, we were on a budget, but we could, I guess, be more ethically involved with our eating choices. Yeah, I agree. And then... And I, you know, talking about ethics, another component that I liked was that he has students work on a service learning project. And I think that's really important in our field because I think we do a lot of stuff and then people don't hear about it. We, you know, we do a lot of writing and we do a lot of, but like no one really knows outside of our field what we're doing. So with this learning project, he basically asks his students to either reach out to administrators, write letters, make recommendations and propose food related solutions. I think it's a great way to spotlight composition and to like yeah. real world experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is, I mean, that's showing a perfect example of taking what we learn in the classroom and moving it outside into the quote unquote real world. Right. Yeah. The interaction with the different instructors relating it back to food, which like we talked about earlier is something everyone can relate to. I like that idea. And I also like the idea of maybe bringing some more multimodality into like, I didn't think any of his assignments were really multimodal. So maybe sort of like what we're doing, creating a podcast where they talk about, they can maybe highlight some of the, the fast food restaurants. Like I think last semester in a different class, I did uh, like a Chick-fil-A versus Popeye's project. And because yeah. they had the whole um, debacle with their chicken sandwich and just like doing something, either a presentation or something physical where they, they compose something about food, but in a different way, in a different medium, not just a text or not just a written text. 
Um, I would like to see something like that. I would like, I think that's, it's very important in any composition classroom to incorporate some kind of multimedia project. Oh yeah, absolutely. And with the way that we're, we as a society keep and continue to advance in a way that like, you know, visual learning is becoming more and more popular. Um, people love to listen to podcasts or audiobooks, either on a road trip or their daily commute. Um, we're seeing more and more people move away from like actual, the actual reading of text. So yeah, I think a multimodal type of learning would be a perfect complement to Papros food and rhetoric. It might even be fun for students to create like um, almost like a YouTube cooking video. And I think it would incorporate like different parts of, so you would have to think about scripting the video, the design of the video, like laying it out, who's involved, who's doing, I think there's, that's a great like group project that's still composition and food and would still be fun for students, especially if they decide to do it like, you know, cooking in a dorm, that could be like a fun yes. for students to make. Absolutely. I really, really like that idea. And I mean, YouTube, you could share it. You could honestly even come back to that, to that work and see, you could look at the comments you were getting and maybe you could go back and either tweak a video or make another one. Um, I really like that idea, Marley. Thank you. So there's actually another professor who's using food as a theme for her graduate composition courses. Her name is Dr. Carrie Helms Tippin, and she is a, actually I'll let her introduce herself. So Dr. Tippin, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure, um, I am the director of first year writing and an assistant professor of English at Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I teach courses on first-year writing with the theme of food. And I also teach kind of American literature courses with food themes. I have a book called Inventing Authenticity, How Cookbook Writers Redefine Southern Identity. And it kind of looks at cookbooks as rhetorical and literary documents. Uh, So I also teach a course called The Cookbook as Literature. So all of the courses that I teach have some connection with food, food writing, writing, and reading. I am so jealous. I wish that our university had this program because I am obsessed with all things food. And every project that I've been doing in my graduate program has been around food, even though I am a composition student. Um, So I, I was very excited to find somebody else that sort of like you went that direction as well. Um, How did you get into food studies? Yeah, I had to kind of piece things together myself. uh, Also, I went into my PhD program fully committed to just a straight Southern literature, American literature type uh, dissertation, and had been interested in food as just a human person. (laughs) And I had a little food blog. And I was really interested in like gender and food labor and all those things are really interesting to me, but I thought they were just for fun. And then I went to, as a first year PhD student, the Pop Culture Association Conference. And I wandered into a room that had just panel after panel about food. And I just saw so many cool people doing really interesting theory rich investigations of things like the movie Bridesmaids and (laughs) some very cool 
food memoirs. And I, it just sort of dawned on me for the first time that like, oh, this, there is something serious going on here. So my questions are not just personal interests, but they're actually kind of important scholarly questions as well. Uh, so I had a couple of mentors who were really, um, uh, I guess, interested as well. They had other kind of food connections, not super deep, but, uh, but other interests, and they kind of helped foster that with me, helped me connect early on with Elizabeth Englehart, who's a scholar of Appalachian food studies. And so that's kind of how it all got started. And so did you introduce the program to the university that you're currently working at? Like the, the concept, how did you like bring that? Yeah, we have a food studies program. And actually, I'm not really that closely associated with our food studies program. It's more kind of agricultural <laughs> science based with a lot of anthropology and sociology mm -hmm. connections too. So my primary job is still in English and composition. I created these courses because that's my research agenda. And so I got to kind of bring those in. So they're a part of food studies. And I, I sometimes mentor students in that food studies program, but I don't actually teach in it. How was it received by your administration when you came up to them and said that you wanted to teach composition through the food lens? Well, the first time I taught that was as a graduate student. I was teaching first year composition for Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. Mm -hmm. And we had a system whereby we vetted syllabi of courses that we wanted to teach. And it was not really much of a question. It was sort of like uh, uh, all graduate students, whatever their research agenda is, they get to pair that with the way that they want to teach comp. And so as long as it had the same kind of assignments and really composition theory rich experiences, we could do whatever theme we wanted. So I called that one uh, Food Fights. And we did a lot of argument. Uh, the, the course was centered on argument, especially. And so we did a lot of rhetorical analysis of ads for yogurt and rhetorical analysis of a couple of manifestos for like uh, organic eating. So, yeah, it was really easy to kind of get it through. That's amazing, Dr. Tippin. I am so curious to know, how did how did you first discover, you talked about narratives and stories that cookbooks tell. How did you first notice that? How did you see that narratives were present and, I guess, studyable in cookbooks? That's a great question. Honestly, I wanted to do food. Mm -hmm. I wasn't looking specifically at cookbooks at first. Right. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Really, I think it has to do with just like, where is the text in a cookbook? Where are all the words at? And it seems to me, well, so here's another way of answering it too. There, were, there is a, a body of um, like community cookbook scholarship that is really rich and a little bit older than the kind of uh, work that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And those community cookbooks, all their stories are in the connections between people and the things that aren't really in the cookbook itself, but are kind of about how the cookbook got put together. And that was really interesting to me, but was hard to do. But these commercially published cookbooks that are coming out right now, they have tons of text. They have huge introductions. They have these head notes in front of every recipe. They have chapter, like essays to introduce each chapter. They have these long sidebars with lots of things written in them, profiles of farmers uh, that the chefs interact with. There's just so much to read in today's cookbooks. And I think uh, I was drawn to them partly because I'm a 20th and 21st century 
literature person anyway. So I never was really very interested in the historical kinds of, of texts that might have less of that narrative structure. So <laughs> thank you for asking it. Yeah, of course. It's it's honestly something I've noticed because I I kind of grew up, I was raised on a farm and I was always helping with the cooking and eventually I became the main cook in my family. And so I was always perusing the old cookbooks. And back then, I don't believe I noticed it as much. But today, I don't know if you use Pinterest for recipes, but... <laughs> It's one of my favorites. And so I'll click on there and instead of the recipe, you get this entire spill uh, about how the author, you know, came about the recipe, how long it's been in the family, what makes it good, and even like tips and tricks on, you know, what they do to make their special. So yeah, I did find that fascinating. Thank you. When those like blog, blog like stories, there's a lot of controversy out there in the food writing community about them. There, There's a huge contingency of people who find them utterly annoying. And they have memes about like, I would love to tell you about this croissant recipe. But first, let me tell you about how my trip to study abroad in Greece in 1990, whatever. And so a lot of people find them just distracting and annoying. And they're really only there to boost what's the search search engine optimization, things like that. So anyway, I mean, uh, one of the caveats that I always have to talk about in my research is that the the thing that I'm writing about is the thing most likely to be skipped and ignored entirely. If you're going to use a cookbook, like really use it, you don't care about any of the things that I read and write about. You skip them, you go straight to the recipe, you look at the pictures, but the, the parts that I talk about are really only there for that small set of cookbook readers who I think are very different from cookbook users. Yeah, I would completely agree. That's really fascinating. That that also prompts another question for yeah. me. How do you, with that being said, you know, yeah, a lot of people are only using cookbooks for the recipe and the measurements and how it's put together. So how do you make your writing uh, relevant? Oh, yeah. It's a lot of... I think talking about character, the thinking about the writer and the relationship between the writer and the reader as a rhetorical kind mm-hmm. of relationship, and thinking about the idea of persuasion, that even if you only look at the recipe itself, the you know, the ingredients, the instructions, there's still an element of persuasion in that that's worth studying. Uh, and there are lots of people who have done cool things with um, doing a linguistic kind of taxonomy of the kinds of parts of a recipe and how each of those might be interesting. Uh, one of the first articles that I published compared two recipes from two different Southern magazines and talked about how one used no adjectives to describe the ingredients because they just wanted you to use it, while the other one had several adjectives in a row, even in that recipe part. And the suggestion I made was that that might be a recipe that you're meant to imagine. And they need to give you a lot more tools to do that imagining through those those adjectives in the list of ingredients. So I think another kind of connected part of that is uh, intellectual property law and copyright. So recipes aren't really copyrightable except for their literary expression. So I think we're starting to see recipes have more of that literary flair in the recipe itself because then you can track someone copied my recipe words, not just that they copied my recipe Mm -hmm. formula. I I guess that's maybe how I kind of make that 
that conversation. And that they're a part, I, I don't think anybody today thinks that the food scene is meaningless. I think we're all aware that, that people participate in food justice and injustice uh, and that the things that we say about food are often codes for other ways that we think about culture and the value of, of people. So um, I don't often have to fight that battle very hard. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, it sounds like there's quite a lot to unpack in all of that. Mm-hmm. To bring it back into composition, so what what are the students, like the kind of students that go into your course that's themed around food? How do they differ from students? Or do you notice any differences between those and students who prefer just like a general composition class that maybe doesn't? theme? Yeah. So unfortunately for my uh, students now, they don't really have a choice. <laughs> they, the, the way we do it, and this is something that, that our administration wants to happen, is that students sign up for a time to take a first year composition. And when they get there, then they learn about the theme that their instructor has created. And so um, as the coordinator of that program, I've had to kind of talk to a lot of different instructors about how to make a topic uh, broad enough and interesting enough and personal enough that any student could get interested especially if they don't have a choice, right? <laughs> so so I, I think about that a lot. I think about how um, how to make this seem universally appealing to all kinds of students. But I have found that the students who like it the most uh, tend to be from sustainability. We have a, a really large sustainability program and mm-hmm. they really enjoy thinking about, they're kind of primed to think about food as a system that affects a lot of other things like um, race, class, gender, <laughs> those kinds of things can intersect with the food. And they're kind of ready to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And then there's sort of a contingency. I think like health sciences students are interested, but they can't often see beyond the calories and nutritional part of food, but they get there. It takes them a minute, but they they tend to get there. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of assignments do you have students work on in these in this course? We do pretty typical comp uh, assignments. Uh, all the sections of comp have the same assignments of uh, personal narrative, textual analysis, a research-based argument, and then an annotated bibliography somewhere in there. I forgot about. <laughs> but I theme, so we get to theme those assignments then around the topic, right? So the personal narrative is about kind of food memories. And I try to get them to connect it to some other aspect of their social identity. So uh, thinking about a food that you ate that represented your class and tell me the story of that or a uh, foods or food memories that tell you something about your gender or gender identity or uh, things that connect to your race or ethnicity. So that's always a fun one. And then uh, for the textual analysis, I, uh, I used to leave it really open to sort of like any persuasive text about food. But since then, I've sort of narrowed it down to cookbooks. And so uh, I asked them to find a cookbook and do a textual analysis of cookbooks, like a close reading. And for the research-based projects, the bibliography and the argument that comes after it, I have started um, just throwing like narrowing down to a a food related topic. So last semester I did food access and this semester I did uh, like food in schools and that was all that I gave them. And from there they had to pick something within that kind of big broad topic 
that they could find a, a policy or a program solution for and then make an argument for that. So uh, I do try to theme it around something that has to do with food and identity or food and justice to kind of get them out of that, that calorie nutrition space. That's cool. We, we actually just read an article by uh, Matthew Paproth called, uh, right, I, well, I think the article is in, this, in a journal called Writing Pathways to Student Success, but the article is called Confronting the Uncomfortable Food in First Year Composition. Oh. And I'm noticing like a similarity between the two of you because he sort of talks about how most people think about how food unites us, but not the different, like all the ways that food actually makes us feel uncomfortable, how it makes us different in things like gender yes. or, so it's kind of, I like the assignments that you're talking about sort of align with the same sort of assignments he does. He has his students do where they have to think about, you know, access to food as a problem. Like just I can make something doesn't mean my neighbor can, because maybe my neighbor doesn't make enough money or whatever. Yeah, doesn't have access yeah. to that food. So I like that idea. I think it's a cool way to get students to think beyond just this is a meal in front of me and I made it. Yeah, I have two readings that I often do uh, as a pair. And one is uh, Lisa Heldke's uh, book, Exotic Appetites. And then the other <laughs> is uh, Elijah Anderson's article uh, about the cosmopolitan canopy. And I like to put these two together because Lisa Heldke argues uh, or defines this term culinary colonialism. And this is basically the idea of like white middle-class Euro-Americans go into a Chinese restaurant and they think they know everything about the Chinese now, and they walk away feeling cooler than they were before. And so you're, you're a colonizer because you've taken the raw materials of this other culture and made it a part of your identity to make yourself uh, kind of more socially acceptable. And then Elijah Anderson comes in with the cosmopolitan canopy, which is really helpful that they all start with C's. And he's talking about uh, Reading Market in Philadelphia and how this food market space becomes this place where everyone's differences disappear. And you can sort of see each other more clearly and you can talk to each other in ways that you wouldn't and you physically bump into each other in ways that you wouldn't. Uh, and so they're both talking about this one act of eating at a restaurant and they come to completely different conclusions about what that action means or what that action does. And so it becomes a moment oh. where students can really talk about where do they fit into this kind of continuum of thoughts about what does it mean to eat uh, across cultural lines. And it's really interesting for them to see, like I didn't present either of those as my point of view, so I don't really tell them who to agree with. <laughs> and both positions are equally available to them. And they can sort of see and get behind both arguments. And so it becomes this really interesting way to explore how one simple act of just ordering Chinese food can be kind of important if we think about That's it. That's really cool. I'm going to have to check those readings out. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, they both do sound very, very fascinating. And that's really, really neat. This pro I probably should have asked this earlier, but I didn't want to interrupt. I know that in the beginning you said you had a, a Southern identity um, when it comes to cooking. So could you fill us in a little bit more about that that background? Yeah. So I've neutralized my accent. <laughs> well, and now that I've been uh, isolated in my home for a month and I've only been talking to my mom on the phone, uh, the Texas 
is on the back. So I grew up in Texas. Uh, I grew up on a, a cotton farm in the Texas Panhandle. Mm-hmm. And uh, we grew cotton and peanuts and we had a huge garden. And, uh, you know, so lots of kind of agricultural food activities. But I spent my entire childhood uh, purposefully avoiding any of that. I did not want to be a part of the gardening. I did not want to be, I did not want to cook. I think it was sort of just a middle child activity that I just could not be bothered by learning to cook. And so when I didn't start cooking until I had left home, been through college, finished my master's degree, Uh, was married, moved uh, to West Virginia. And while I was in West Virginia, I was homesick, as you could not believe. And if I wanted to eat the foods Mm -hmm. of my family, I was going to have to cook them myself. And so that was the first time that I really asked my family for recipes, the first time that I really tried cooking to see (laughs) if I could do it. I had I had always resented it again as like this feminine activity that I could not be bothered with and did not want to be associated with. And around the same time, I started teaching a class on uh, Southern uh, literature and film. Southern literature and film is the title of it. And it was one of these first year writing courses, but it was also uh, it was a four credit course. And so one of those credits was meant to be like activities to help students feel bound to the university. So for this one credit, they were supposed to do things like go to plays and go to a football game and interview someone on the staff and like get to know the university. Mm -hmm. So I used those one credits as um, for them to come to my house. I lived about two blocks from campus and they would come to my house and we would watch one of these films we're going to talk about in class. And I decided to cook Southern food for them. And in the process of kind of figuring out how to do that, we had spent the whole course really questioning who's defining Southerness in this. What's the, what's their goal? Why are they defining it like this? And who's really in charge of this definition? Uh, And suddenly I started thinking about, well, how do I know that this is a Southern food? Who told me? Uh, And so that was sort of my first questions about what is authenticity and what is authentic Southern food and and how does that all fit in? So that's kind of how the Southern part got in there. I I do think of myself as as a Southerner, even though Texas is sort of disputedly uh, not in the South or maybe in the South. Uh, but I think my, especially with my like cotton farming background, I think I grew up pretty similarly to, you know, anybody in the Mississippi Delta. Yeah, I, I believe I would agree with you. I, I also grew up on a farm, um, kind of like okay. northern Tennessee, northern middle Tennessee. Um, up toward, we were like right on the border between Tennessee and Kentucky. Um, we never really grew cotton, but we mm. did have a lot of livestock that we took care of, huge gardens. And we also had a really large Amish community around us. And so a lot of times we would actually do business um, with Amish. We would usually trade like vegetables and fresh oh, eggs. Wow. And I owned horses. And That's so cool. we would get really nice discounts on the saddles and equipment for my horses. So it was fascinating. I'm sorry. That was for my curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, yeah. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your podcast, uh, New Books and Food? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a part of a network called New, the New Books Network. And it's a lot of these channels that are academic book reviews, basically. Um, and so I basically just pick books that I want to read that have something to do with food. Uh, and I read them and interview the authors and uh, kind of review 
the books for the podcast. So um, they do sort of have a Southern bent. I just did a, a couple in a row. One was about um, uh, alcohol in the South. One is about Appalachian food studies. Um, but I've also done them about like pigs in America and <laughs> the history of um, yeah. coffee in the Mediterranean. So they're they're basically just uh, other academics who are writing about food. And um, I get free books and get to talk to uh, people who I want to be my friends. And um, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty exciting stuff. <laughs> that's awesome. It's a, it's a pretty sweet gig. I'll say that's, that's really cool. And you can listen to it on all of the like regular podcasts, Spotify, Apple. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'm not the only host on that channel. Um, and it's very much a cross listed channel. So if someone from new books in the American South reviews a book that has a food angle, it will show up on the new books, uh, feed. So you'll hear my voice, but you'll hear other people's voices as well. A quick question on the podcast that you do. You said you interviewed uh, authors of these books, um, that really pertain to food. Whenever you interview them, do you like, what can you tell me about their attitude or their overall approach? Are they excited to be there? Are they like apprehensive? Do they really want to get their point across? That's a good question. I think people obviously love to talk about themselves. Um, maybe that's not obvious, but uh, people like to talk about themselves. They like to talk about their work. I think academics are among the friendliest and most open people there are. We're curious. We're interested in sharing what we have learned. Uh, so yeah, I haven't met with any resistance yet. Maybe that's the one person who won't return my first email is sort of the person who, right, if they respond at all, they're going to be excited about it. But I am finding that I'm talking to a lot of people who are coming to food from somewhere else. So their first book was about history or their first, uh, their dissertation was in one place, but they're now thinking about how food is intersecting in their space. So like uh, history, but now it's food in that historical time, or they were interested in, you know, Southern literature, but now we're interested in how alcohol is in Southern literature. So finding those intersections between the area that they study most and how food kind of plays a part in it. I think we're starting to see food studies more broadly, like make its way into lots of other interdisciplinary spaces. It's always been interdisciplinary, but I think it's, um, I think it's on its way in a lot of ways. So um, another example of this is one of my favorite uh, collections of essays on food studies is um, called The Larder, uh, Food Studies Methods of the U.S. South or something close to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the very end of it, the editor says something like, I hope this is the last collection about food studies that we have to open by saying food studies is important and worth studying. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so ever since I read that, I've made this like concerted effort not to start the conversation by excusing or explaining or trying to convince that it's worth talking about. I'm sort of just starting with the assumption that we all agree that this is important and I don't have to convince you of that fact. So I kind of like bringing that attitude to the food channel. And I think that we're seeing because food is getting picked up by everyone else that we no longer really have to make that justification. Yeah. That reminds me of the same sort of argument that's made against um, composition. I feel like in the field of composition, we say the same thing. We have to say composition is important and worthy of studying because people don't understand that 
either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. And I mean, I've I've heard it said food is sometimes considered the great unifier. So even if you do come from different backgrounds, for the most part, all of us have to eat to survive. And so and I think that we do kind of carry with us food sticks with us, not just, you know, physically, but mentally, we have wonderful memories of it. And we can carry those memories into different areas of our life. Yeah, totally. And I think that that's maybe why it makes such a good first year composition theme as well as that students, it's one of those things that can have a real, they can get really easy access to it, they can, you know, find their particular place in it really quickly. Mm -hmm. But it also stands to reveal a lot to them. So it's both universal because of its ordinariness, but it's also exceptional, I think, because of its ordinariness. There's a lot hidden under that ordinary thing. So I think we need to start wrapping up now, but I do want to mention if anyone is interested in reading about your research or picking up your book, you do have a website. It's uh, carrytippin.wordpress.com, correct? Correct. I wish it was more up to date. I'm going to work on that. (laughs) so thank you so much for joining us again of course i really appreciate the invitation it's uh, always nice to talk with other like-minded people Mm -hmm, absolutely thank you for joining us today and i hope all of our listeners have also enjoyed this interview and this different kind of outlook on food and composition studies that's great thank you thank you yeah thank We thank you all for tuning in to this episode of The Writer's Edge, and we hope you tune in next time. You can submit your own podcast to be featured on ours, and you can even submit your own stories about the Writing Center or any questions that you may have. If you'd like more information about the Writing Center itself, visit our website at nova.edu forward slash WCC. You can also reach out to us at WCC at nova.edu or 954-262-4644. Thank you again for tuning into The Writer's Edge and we'll be back on your airwaves real soon.